Hey listeners, just one quick update to the original version of the show that was posted a few days ago. I made one mistake when I was discussing which patients were misclassified by the rule, and I've updated that in the middle of the podcast. I'll alert you when we get there, but I did want to let you know up front that there's a slight change from the original posting. Welcome back to another edition of the Alien Pecan Podcast Series. I'll be your host today, Jason Woods. In this edition, we're going to take a look at the Pecan Neonatal or Infant Fever Rule. It was published in JAMA Pediatrics in February of 2019 with Nate Cooperman as the lead author, titled A Clinical Prediction Rule to Identify Febrile Infants 60 Days and Younger at Low Risk for Serious Bacterial Infections. We actually got Dr. Cooperman, the lead author on the paper, on the phone to chat about what this paper means, go over the methods a little bit, and then the big knowledge bomb at the end, how do we incorporate this into our current clinical practice since we're still trying to figure out the best way to identify these patients. Take it away, Nate. I'm Nate Cooperman. I'm a pediatric emergency physician at UC Davis Medical Center. I am also the chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at UC Davis. And uh, with regard to this article, I'm the lead author, and I'm one of the three PIs of this study that we've been undergoing for the last 15 years to evaluate young febrile infants and identify risk factors and better ways to screen for serious bacterial infections through the through PCARN, which is the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network. So, Nate, I'm asking this a little tongue-in-cheek, but why do we even care about the prediction rule for febrile infant? You know, I, didn't we have some uh, a bunch of criteria that were named after cities there for a while? And, <laughs> uh, you know, like, why are we still looking at this? Very good question. So, there's uh, several ways to answer your question, Jason. First of all, we know that if an infant appears critically ill, then they're critically ill and we don't need prediction rules to identify those with serious bacterial infections. Unfortunately, a great percentage of febrile infants who harbor underlying what we call invasive bacterial infections, that is bacteremia or bacterial meningitis, they look pretty good and they don't appear critical. So we need criteria or algorithms to identify those that are at risk for infection. But at the same time, we don't want to be evaluating every one of these febrile infants because we know there's risks and drawbacks to all the testing and hospitalizations that we do for febrile infants. So that's the reason we need these criteria. And the reason we're continuing to investigate that now, despite all of those city-named algorithms from decades ago is that we have newer biomarkers and better ways to screen for these infections. And what they've allowed us to do is they've allowed us to identify children with greater sensitivity, but perhaps more importantly, they greatly increase the specificity. That is, we can identify infants that are at substantially low risk, and for those, we can obviate lumbar punctures empirical antibiotics and hospitalizations, which those previous older algorithms did not let us do. I appreciate that that's what you focus on, because for me, that I think is one of the, the most important pieces of this is, you know, we could just work everybody up, but that ends up exposing a lot of children to antibiotics. And the more time they spend in the hospital, the more likely they are to get exposed to all the other junk that we have running around just from an infectious standpoint. Exactly. And I just want to highlight, Jason, one other thing is that 
the sensitivity is very similar to the sensitivities of those city named rules from decades ago. But the big difference is that almost all, in fact, all of them, except for the Rochester criteria, required lumbar punctures to risk stratify and the new age ones do not. Let's chat about just some of the baseline characteristics of the study. Where did the patients come from and how did they get into the study and and were there any specific exclusion criteria? To take it one step back, this is actually a sub-study of a large group of studies that we've been performing in PCARN since the mid-2000, 2005 or so, to evaluate RNA transcriptomics. That is, looking at the response to infection by how your messenger RNA expresses itself to identify those infants who have bacterial versus viral infections. Well, a few years into the study, we decided while we're at this, we should probably also look at better ways to screen for these infections. And that's when we added procalcitonin to the screening portfolio of of laboratory tests. And with that in mind, we enrolled nearly 2,000, about 1,800 infants from 26 emergency departments in PCARN. Something I always think is interesting when we're when we're looking at these studies is just the definition of what we're including as SBIs. And you know, the one that always comes up is UTI. You know, how how are you defining UTI and what CFU counts are we considering to be positive or, or negative? Yeah, UTIs, they're our biggest nemesis because <laughs> we have this we have this spreadsheet of the types of combinations of pyuria and nitrites and cultures that you wouldn't uh, believe. The good news is that there's AP guidelines defining UTIs. That's the good news. The bad news is that it goes down to two months of age, and there are no guidelines for younger than two months of age. So we opted to be very conservative. That is, the AAP guidelines for UTIs for uh, young children two months to 24 months defines a UTI as 50,000 or greater CFU per ml of culture growth in association with pyuria. So that certainly would qualify as a UTI in this study as well. But we also lowered the CFU count to 10,000 because we found in a prior publication that I think, I think Jason, you podcasted with Leah, the, the I, I first did. author. Right. Uh, we found that at a, uh, a culture count of 10,000, we identified lots of UTIs as well in this younger cohort. But the only modification we made is that if the CFU count was 10,000, then it required a positive inflammatory marker. If the culture was 50,000 or greater, we did not require inflammatory markers. This is how it differs from the AAP guidelines. When you say inflammatory marker, do you mean within the urine itself? So nitrite, leukesterase, white blood cell? Correct, right. In this, uh, this case, I'm just talking about inflammatory markers in the urine, right. And then I don't know where to ask this question, but, and I think the answer is that it's going to be because of the way the parent study was designed, but why wasn't CRP included in the list of potential predictors? As you mentioned, this was a sub-study of that genomic study. So when these young febrile infants come in, they first need their laboratory tests for the study. That takes a bunch of blood. And then they needed their genomic markers for the parent study. And then they needed procalcitonin because we had reviewed the the literature in detail between procalcitonin and C-reactive protein and as a screen for invasive bacterial infection, that is bacteremia or bacterial meningitis, procalcitonin clearly outperforms the C-reactive protein. So, and then after that, we were running out of blood 
and we're also running out of money. Uh, and, but <laughs> but uh, the reality is, and you can see this in the the supplement to this article. And I, I would actually encourage the listeners to look at the supplement because there's really some great material uh, in the supplement, including modified uh, prediction algorithms that round numbers and make it easier to remember, things like that. But if you look at E-Table 1, which is the first table in the supplement, uh, there was actually 2,400 febrile infants that would have qualified for this study, but 648, we could not get procalcitonin because the, the blood was just done. We couldn't get any more blood. And if we had added C-reactive protein on top of that, then there would be an, a, even a bigger number so before we, we jump in and talk about the results, I just want to talk about the statistical design ahead of time and coming at this from a, a place where I did take statistics, but I feel like every time we, we look at a study, I've got to review what they are. So just briefly, the predictor variables that you included when trying to develop this rule were age groups. So that was greater or less than 28 days, what the temperature was, the duration of fever, the Yale uh, observation score, which we can talk about a little bit, unstructured clinical uh, suspicions. So the clinicians were asked based on percentiles, what do they think the risk that this kid had SBI was the urinalysis, the white blood cell count, the absolute neutrophil count and the procalcitonin. So that's all of what went into the study. And Good. then you say that you did recursive partitioning analysis. And it, do you have any way of explaining that? Uh, so a dumb dumb like me can, can understand it. <laughs> yeah, sure. So, there are many different methods to do what we call multivariable analysis. And multivariable analysis means what it sounds like, that we're investigating several variables at the same time, and we're looking at the marginal contribution of one on top of the other. And the types of multivariable analyses that are done out there is the most traditional is logistic regression. I certainly have a lot of experience with that. There's recursive partitioning, there are neural networks, and now going into the future, we're doing machine learning and artificial intelligence. So all, these are all ways of looking at lots of variables at the same time. What recursive partitioning does, it's, it's one of the techniques to do multivariate analysis. And what it does is it splits your data on the most important variables that distinguish infants with serious bacterial infections from those without. And it continues to split the data until it's met certain threshold criteria that you've programmed into the software. And the beauty of recursive partitioning, and again, there's you can make arguments for one type of analysis over the other, but the strengths of recursive partitioning analysis are that it, first of all, interactions are built into the software. That is, you're looking at the presence of one variable after adjusting for the variables above it. So if you look at our results, your analysis is the most important variable. It's introduced first into the algorithm, and then it's looking at the next variable in the presence or absence of a positive urinalysis. So it, these interactions, which in logistic regression, you have to model, they're natively built into the software of recursive partitioning. And the other thing that I like a lot about recursive partitioning, it displays the results in a way that's easy for a clinician to interpret in this decision tree. Do you want to talk about what the results actually were? What came out in this rule as, as far as being a important predictors of, of low risk? Sure. So 
there were from those variables that you mentioned that we explored and we explored all of those and i just want to highlight a couple that we did not explore to make it really clear up front you mentioned one we talked about c-reactive protein that we did not have available to us we also purposely did not examine the band count the reason is is that first of all only about half of hospitals in the network use bands because there is a fair amount of inter-rater reliability issues with band counts and people have also questioned the marginal utility of band counts above the absolute neutrophil count so for that reason we did not consider bands and what we found was of this list of variables that were considered only three are important for the prediction rule and that was the urinalysis the absolute neutrophil count and the procalcitonin All right, let's pause right there, and we just got to review this. The three variables that they came up from the list we talked with earlier that are important are the absolute neutrophil count, the urinalysis, and serum procalcitonin. Absolute neutrophil count, urinalysis, serum procalcitonin. One of the unique characteristics of this study is rather than plug in these kind of cute little thresholds for these variables, we let the software identify the best cutoff for these variables. So... For urinalysis, it's just positive or negative. That one is a is just a categorical variable in two categories. The absolute neutrophil count, the threshold was 4,090 cells per microliter, and then procalcitonin of 1.71. So that if you're negative on all three of those, the negative predictive value is extremely high, 99.8. You can see this in figure two. The one thing we did struggle with, the other what I would consider consider current new age prediction rule is the step-by-step rule by Borja Gomez and Santi Mintegi and colleagues who are good friends of mine. I've actually spent a a part of a sabbatical earlier this year with them in the Basque country of Spain. They're wonderful people and wonderful investigators. They, as you probably know, Jason, in the step-by-step rule, there's some similar variables. Uh, They use procalcitonin, they use CRP or ANC, but their procalcitonin threshold that they use is 0.5. They didn't derive that cutoff. Uh, They use that cutoff because that has been shown in bivariable analyses to be a good threshold for identifying invasive bacterial infection. So although one of the powers of our study is that we identified these ideal thresholds of 4.1 for ANC and 1.7 for procalcitonin, we were a little bit concerned about not wanting to confuse the reader. So we thought, what happens if we just round off the ANC from 4.1 to 4,000 and took the procalcitonin from 1.71 to 0.5 so that there isn't procalcitonin confusion out there? And, and in both those cases, you're making the rule more conservative. Exactly. You, are, you are likely to increase your false positives. Exactly. So we knew by doing this, the risk of doing it. And that's why we didn't report this as the primary analysis, because the power of the primary analysis is just the truth. We wanted to know what are statistically the best thresholds. But if you look at uh, the supplemental material, and specifically, I'm looking at supplemental figure E4, when you round the ANC to 4,000 and change the procalcitonin threshold to 0.5, amazingly, The sensitivity is identical. 
And all that you lose is a few percentage points in the specificity. I thought this was a really important way to go about it. If you develop this great rule that either nobody will use or can use because they get confused by it, then, then you haven't done anything beneficial. So the uptake or the ideal versus the real world use of it is an important consideration. Right. And I just want to, you're absolutely right, Jason. That's, uh, and we're always thinking about the implementation. In fact, we uh, were already designing the study for uh, implementation, but I want to point out something that's also important. And this goes back to the issue of recursive partitioning and the importance of doing this rounded cutoff of procalcitonin in the supplement. If you look at the main paper, procalcitonin of 1.7, that marks high versus low. But as you recall, if you look at the figure, that's after you have a negative urinalysis and an ANC less than 4,000. So I, it's important that readers understand that that threshold of 1.7, that does define high and low procalcitonin, but only after the urinalysis and the ANC are normal, if you follow. The threshold of 0.5 of procalcitonin is what others have found to be a quote-unquote normal procalcitonin in just bivariate analysis. That is, if that was the only variable you had, that is a threshold that identifies low risk. So by rounding to 0.5, we decrease the likelihood that someone will misunderstand that procalcitonin cutoff of 1.7 because that is the low cutoff in the in the absence of, that is, after you consider the urine and ANC, 0.5 is just a low cutoff period. Now, just one thing that Nate and I didn't get into in the discussion today is misses for the rule. So there were three. The paper actually does a really fantastic job of discussing them. Two were culture-positive urines without pyuria, both in infants greater than 28 days. And so there is a good discussion in the paper about asymptomatic bacteriuria and whether or not we need to care about that. This is where I'm gonna jump in just to correct one mistake that we made in the original recording. The third patient I had originally said had a positive blood culture for enterobacter but did not receive antibiotics. That's not quite true. They had a positive blood culture for enterobacter. It became positive at 17 hours and antibiotics were started and completed for a seven day course. However, repeat blood cultures that were drawn before the antibiotics were started were never positive. And so the paper has a good discussion about how to place this patient in the context of the rule. The positive didn't show up until a little bit late. A repeat blood culture that was done after the initial was negative and no antibiotics were ever given. And so it's a little bit unclear what to do with that, but probably not a clinically important miss. Back to the discussion. It, the only other thing that I, I wanted to mention in here was, I think historically the, the studies that have at least listed recent SBI rates in febrile infants have quoted anywhere between 8 and and 13%. And I think in this study, it's about 9.3. So there's some face validity in the fact that we're, we're still seeing roughly the same number of infections and you're not happening to catch just a healthier population. Right. A very important point, Jason, that we think it's reflective of the population of these young febrile infants at large. And we did do at one point in the study, and this is in the parent study, so we didn't report it in this paper, but we looked, uh, did a laboratory screen of 
missed eligible patients and looked at their rates of, uh, of bacteremia, and it was very similar to those that were enrolled. So several reasons to think that this, in fact, is quite representative of the population of febrile infants at large. In this rule, neither the clinician Gestalt or the Yale observation score came out as being important in the prediction, which I think reinforces what we what we keep finding in these young children is that they they can look well and not be well. And do you think we are still having trouble convincing people of this? Or am I maybe falsely assuming that that people are, are too confident in their ability? Yeah, that's, a, that's a good question. And I chuckle, uh, and I chuckle with a tear in my eye uh, because – um, as you know, I have spent a uh, um, a good piece of my research career creating prediction rules. I've got to break in here one more time. In every podcaster's life, there comes a time when in the middle of a recording, you start to have internet connectivity issues, but it's right as your guest is about to drop the biggest knowledge bombs of the whole day. So I got to keep this audio, but you're going to hear some clicks and pops in there. We know they're there. Hopefully you can still pay attention to the content underneath because Nate is about to level a really important discussion about where this research fits within the rest of the febrile infant research and how to use it. I have found time and time again, it's not that clinical prediction rules are meant to replace clinical judgment. Clinical judgment is really important. It's good to have humans and not robots caring for patients, I think. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but, uh, it is important to, to note that what these rules do is they provide evidence to help your clinical judgment. If you're on a desert island and are evaluating a febrile infant and all you have is your clinical judgment, it's better than nothing. However, if you happen to have a urine and an ANC and a procalcitonin, I hate to say it, but those trump clinical judgment. But again, the, the spirit of this is not to say these are meant to replace your judgment. They're meant to empower your judgment with evidence because particularly for the young febrile infant, and we, we know this because we looked at this in a bigger cohort. That is, we have 5,000 patients that we reported on. The first author was Lise Nigrovich. A couple of years ago, we looked at the Yale score and unstructured clinical judgment in this big cohort. And the reason why that cohort was bigger is that there were some without procalcitonin, some with procalcitonin. This was at the start of the study. We, And we found even just in bivariate analyses, the sensitivity of clinician judgment and the Yale score was not great for bacteremia. And bacterial meningitis surprisingly gets missed more often than uh, would be acceptable just on using judgment. So yes, we have to reinforce to clinicians that it's not that your clinical judgment is worthless. In fact, as you recall, we excluded patients with critical appearing illnesses from this study, and that is clinical judgment. But beyond that, the reality is, is that these highly objective and easy to obtain variables are more predictive of SBI than the clinician's judgment. That is such an elegant way to put that, Nate. The study did not include viral testing, which I know some other prediction rules have. Was that done intentionally? Was that, again, just because of the parent study? And, and do you think that is meaningful for whatever the, the next plan is? Well, I love the question because it feels like a plant, even though you and I have not, you and I have not discussed this, uh, to go on the record. But it's really interesting. 
So we have studied, and actually I have a couple of uh, articles from 20 years ago with one with Deb Levine and one with Will Kreef that looked at the risk of serious bacterial infection in the presence of RSV infection and, uh, uh, and one in the presence of influenza infection. And we know with those infections, what they do is they, they decrease the risk of SBI, but they don't eliminate it. And then more recently, in this body of work from PCARN, we studied it. The first author was Prashant Mahajan, who's one of my collaborators on, uh, on this study. We looked at the risk of SBI in the presence and absence of very specific viral infections. We had a lot of a lot of them. So from rhinovirus to influenza to RSV, and the risk of SBI is variable based on the virus. But having said that, in the presence of any of these viruses, the risk of SBI goes down. It goes down less if you have rhinovirus, that is the virus that causes the common cold, and the risk is less in the presence of influenza or RSV. But in no case does it obviate, that is, that is, does it completely mitigate the risk of SBI. Actually, nobody has embedded viral positivity or negativity with a prediction rule that includes laboratories as well. But fortunately, because this study, as I mentioned, we're on our third federal grant studying febrile infants. In the current grant, we have enrolled now more than 2,000 infants. This is, again, for the parent study looking at RNA expression patterns. But in the in that study, we have now enrolled more than 2,000 infants in which not only have we obtained procalcitonin cultures and the genomics, but we have complete viral testing. That is, we will be able to look in the presence or absence of those viral tests, how does it affect the rule? That is, one could postulate perhaps that viral testing is super important and maybe one of those laboratory tests fall out as not important. Another possibility is that you already capture the risk of viral versus bacterial infection with the procalcitonin A and C in urine, and maybe that viral testing is not important at all. And you have to remember, at least right now, the cost of one of those multiplex new generation viral pens is quite high. So we would only, we want to do it, we want to use it if it's useful, but not if it's not. Sounds like you and I will be having another interview when that comes out. <laughs> right. <laughs> Before we get to the final wrap up, my only other question, whenever I'm looking at these rules for these young patients is what do we do with, with HSV? It, it doesn't fit in with all of the other viral things, but it's not always that common. And was, was this rule or your study able to say anything about, should we be treating these patients with acyclovir? Do we, do we need to do some sort of additional testing? And, or is that not something you can comment on based on the data that you've got? There were four patients in this data set who by definition were not critically ill appearing because they would have otherwise been excluded. Four patients had HSV. Three of them had HSV in the CNS and one had a mucosal nasopharyngeal um, HSV. The prediction rule, it's a prediction rule, as you recall, for bacterial illness, not for viral illness. It, it only identified two of the four and I would have had no reason to suspect that it would perform any better than that. The other thing you need to remember is that more than 80% of HSV happens in the first month of life, and that's also the time 
in which the risk of bacterial meningitis is higher. So for both of these reasons, I do not advocate using this rule yet in that first month. Wait, what? The lead author on the PCARN infant fever rule says that it's not quite ready for prime time in those infants less than one month old. And I think that's really important. This can help you in the second month of life, but under one month, we're still working things out. And in particular, as you heard us discuss, this does not get at risk of HSV. It does not 100% predict the absence of bacterial meningitis. So you need to take all of this and place it in the context of the other research that has been done. PCARN is going to have some papers out over the next year or two, hopefully, that will take a look at the RNA biosignatures and add to this rule. It's going to be iterative, and I can't wait to see what comes out. And that's going to be it for this edition of the Alium PCARN podcast. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. If you've got any feedback or additional questions, you can find me at jwoodsmd on Twitter via email at jasonwoodsmd at gmail.com. You can find the rest of our content in the Alium podcast feed or at the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com.